Good morning, everyone, to you too. <laughs> Welcome to the worship of God with the people of God at Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church uh, here in Leesburg, Virginia. We're glad that you're here this morning. My name is Frank Pugh. I'm one of the ruling elders here. Uh, before we get started, uh, just kind of review a few announcements. Uh, the uh, baby bottle campaign out is going on. Uh, we've got a couple more weeks for that. Uh, this is to support the Mosaic Pregnancy Care Center. Uh, there's a box of empty bottles out there in the uh, foyer, and if you've got full ones to return, I guess you can put them in the box too. Um, the, uh, so that's going on here for a uh, couple more weeks, so uh, if you feel led to, to contribute in that way to Mosaic, that would be a, a good thing. Uh, we have our uh, fall festival coming up in two weeks from today at the Mextros House out in Hamilton. Uh, so uh, make a note of that to join us. There's a women's retreat uh, that is the week after that. Uh, and I'm sure there's somebody you can contact for details about that too if it's not too late to sign up. Um, and then uh, youth group is having, its, uh, having a meeting at Fox Ridge Park on Wednesday evening this week. Um, it's about as much of the announcements that I need to cover here, but uh, we're, you, we are welcome. We're glad you're here to worship uh, this morning. So let's uh, call ourselves to worship through the responsive reading of Psalm 91. It'll be posted up there. It is posted up there. All right. I'll lead and you all read as the people. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find the shadow of the Almighty. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God and I trusting in him. For he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from the fatal plague. He will shield you with his wings. He will shelter you with his feathers. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the dangers of the day, nor dread the plague that stalks in the darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday, but you will see it with your eyes. You will see how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your dwelling. For he orders his angels to protect you wherever you go. Go with your hands, keep you from striking their foot against stone. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call upon me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will sit to them and honor them. I will satisfy them with God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, inhabiting the praise of your people here this morning. We pray that all we do say uh, and sing will honor you and glorify you. We look forward here this morning to the hearing of your word, to the singing of your word, to the preaching of your word, to the witness of your word, that we might go out in the power of your word. Give us 
the grace this morning to praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand again to sing. believe in God the Father. We believe in Christ the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We are the church and we stand as one. Holy, holy, holy is our we sing because we believe we believe in the holy bible we believe in the virgin birth we believe in the resurrection so christ one day will return to earth Fix in us thy humble dwelling. 
Jesus, Thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love Thou art. Visit us with Thy salvation and turn every trembling heart. Breathe, oh, Spirit into every troubled past. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find our promise rest. Take away the love of sin. Alpha and Omega P. End of faith as it speaks. Oh 
for all he died to say he approached the throne of grace take me into the holy of holies take me in by the blood of the lamb take me into the holy of holies take the cloak seated. All right. Good to see everybody today. We're glad you are here. We have something special today. Isabel Meyer is with us. She is the Leesburg Director for Tree of Life. Lots of folks involved with Tree of Life, and so uh, we're going to have her come down and tell you a little bit about that. Okay, you get two mics. This one, this one. Just clip this to your shoulder. Good, you can take your mask off. Good morning, everybody. I'm so excited to be here this morning. I was telling a few folks that a couple of years ago, I was over when this was being constructed, so all of you were actually coming together in the cafeteria. So this is a new view for me, so thank you very much for that. So I just want to say I'm so excited about being here today because there's some exciting things happening at Tree of Life. And before I go further, just a really quick show of hands, who has heard of Tree of Life? volunteered at Tree of Life, participated, donated, just a quick. I love that. I wish I could have a picture of that. That's like 95% of you, so praise be to God for that. So I won't have to say then too, too much about it because you know about it firsthand, which is really cool. So one exciting thing that's happening um, just a couple down the road here, a couple miles down the road, is where the old Walmart used to be. We were able to lease a 2,000-square-foot site. So actually at the end of this week, we're going to finish construction and you'll be able to donate food there. Instead of going all the way to Percival, we're now going to have a Leesburg pantry, which is really exciting. We're also going to have some office space. So we'll be able to help folks here in the Leesburg area directly in an office area because as most of you know, if you've ever been attending on a Tuesday night, it's at Crossroads Baptist Church. Well, that will still continue. We will still be serving. Um, but as you know, that's a very small church. And right now, because of the season we're living in, we're actually serving an average of 300 meals. And Deb Williams knows that firsthand. Gail and John Spence have seen that as well. So many of you have seen that firsthand. Thank you for all of you that actually have hosted and been part of making sandwiches and meals for that because that's a huge blessing and that will continue throughout. Um, but the other really neat thing is that we're actually gonna be opening a coffee shop for the community called Simply Be Coffee. And the folks that are gonna be actually staffing that coffee shop are special need individuals. So we're working with Echo and Cast. And by the end of this year, we will open the doors for that as well. So just kind of keep in mind of that. If you follow us on social media, just take a look at that. So, But the other reason why I'm here, and Deb Williams is going to probably wonder why should it know I was here, is because I want to honor Deb Williams today. So Deb Williams, come on down.
For those of you that don't know Deb, I'm surprised if you don't know her. If you don't know her, go get a cup of coffee with her because this lady is a really neat lady. Um, when I think of godly, faithful, loyal, patient, full of grace and full of joy, those are just a few words that describe this woman. Annually, we have a recognition volunteer picnic that takes place, um, and unfortunately, she was actually in D.C. that same day um, when there was the, the Graham March taking place, so she was there. She couldn't make it over to Percival, so we do a very small award, just a small token of our appreciation. She couldn't make it, so um, I called your pastor, and I said, hey, is there any way that we can, that I can just come, or can I give this something to you so you could recognize her in front of her brothers and sisters in Christ? And he said, you come on down and you do it. I said, okay, well, thank you for that. So on behalf of Tree of Life, on behalf of all of you, because I know that she is one of the biggest advocates that this church has when it comes to Tree of Life, I want to say thank you for your kingdom work. Thank you, everyone. Let me pray for y'all. I will take that mic, though. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the work of Tree of Life. Thank you that there's a ministry that exalts Christ and serves your people in this town. No questions asked provides food, counseling, uh, language training, career training, uh, so many other ways that people are ministered to. We thank you for the opportunity to have a food pantry, to have a coffee shop, to have a place for uh, our special needs community to work and to feel a part. Lord, we're so grateful for those things. Enable us as a church, as your people, to continue to not only support Tree of Life, to be part of it, to volunteer, to be there, to work there. We have people delivering meals. We have people bringing meals. We have people teaching English, uh, doing all sorts of things. And Lord, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be servants in your name. Lord, we pray especially for Isabel and for Paul Smith, uh, the overall director. Lord, we pray that you would give them great wisdom as they serve your people in our community. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Well, we come now to our time of... Uh, Prayer uh, this morning, we worship God through prayer. Uh, we are uh, kind of been following the last few months this uh, examples of prayer through uh, Redeemer Prez in uh, New York City, and we'll continue to do so again this morning. So there'll be places here in bold print behind me where you all join in prayer, and uh, we'll read at some level or pray at some level responsibly. So let's start from Genesis 22:14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. 
as it is said this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Sovereign God, we pray on behalf of your church throughout the world for this congregation and for our sister PCA churches in Potomac Presbytery. Today we pray specifically for El Rey Nuevo Presbyterian Asuncion Paraguay, a mission work of Potomac Presbytery, and their pastors, Reverend Roberto Moaria, who is recovering from a heart attack, Reverend Freddy Ayala, and Reverend Hugh Aquino. Lord, hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy, of deep compassion, and of genuine justice. You are the great creator. You have made this world and all that is in it. Thank you that we can come before you as your children because of the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, as we come to you, we humbly remember that you are God and we are not. You are at work in our lives, in the lives of those around us, and in this community. Lord, we ask that you be present to hear the prayers of your people. Uh, at, uh, there's a one, uh, a one uh, Loudon gathering that was to have been meeting today, but whenever they do gather, we pray for them. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, may your church be known as the people who love you, who serve you, and work towards healing and renewal in every way. May the church be marked by your generous justice and deep mercy. Jesus, we give you all these prayers and lift them up to you. So let's uh, continue to pray here, Father God. Uh, we, we do thank you for the church here uh, at Potomac Hills Presbyterian. Lord, we, uh, we, we pray here in uncertain times and in uncertain circumstances. Your people, your church, are faced with uncertain times like Daniel in exile, scattered, seemingly irrelevant, persecuted, and marginalized. Give us faith to, leave the, to live these days. Give us faith to trust you rather than our material well-being, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Help us to trust you rather than political leaders who so often fail us. Help us to trust you rather than our own wisdom, which is often not as wise as we might think it. Give us faith to trust you in sunshine and in rain, in youth and in our dotage, in times of joy and in times of grief. Lord, help us to trust you when we face when we when your face shines upon us in abundance and when we're facing persecution help us to know that you are our mighty fortress help us to know that you neither leave us nor forsake us help us to know that no one can snatch us from your hand and help us to know and remember that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So let's respond in unison. O oh God, all of these spoken requests and all of our unspoken requests, we present to you in the gracious name of Jesus, our, our, Savior, our Savior. Amen.
So now let us consider in our, our sin and uh, humbly confess it. We'll give a couple of minutes to, or a couple of moments to, to do that, and then we'll confess together in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you confessing our sins, thoughts that are not like your thoughts, selfish desires and evil passions, and their wicked fruit, cruel words and unjust acts. Keep us, Lord, from pride, arrogance, and from scornful judgment of others. Keep us, Lord, from worshiping the blessings that you have given us, Keep us, Lord, from trusting anything except your grace. Lord, you know our temptations and our struggles. Show us mercy that we may seek righteousness of faith, that we may be forgiven, and that we may be strengthened each day by your Holy Spirit to serve you in the joy of liberty. Amen. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Amen. Let's uh, continue to worship together in uh, song again. Amen. Please uh, stand again and join us. Um, at this time, we would typically do the offertory, um, but uh, not passing the plate today due to the... Um, uh, current situation. However, there are uh, offering boxes as you exit. And as we um, sing the song together, consider uh, the blessings that uh, God has lavished on us through Christ Jesus and what our proper response is um, with uh, giving out of um, a worshipful response to what God has done for us. Should we pay? 
Dismiss our younger children to Children's Church now. Go out there where Pastor Wong is. That would be great. All right. Well, we are in our seventh sermon in this series on the misused stories of the Bible, and today we're in the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And as we've looked at uh, these common stories, this is one of the more famous ones. And Daniel uh, chapter 6 is a long chapter, so we're going to kind of go through it as we go along. But let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Once again, we've come to your word today and we find a favorite passage of many, yet a passage that we consistently fail to fully understand. Help us to see your grace in this story and to have our faith renewed and strengthened as a result. Help us to see our own need of your grace this morning. Help us to know you more through Daniel chapter 6. And so we pray, have mercy on us this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus, for in his name we pray, amen and amen. I will remind you that there is a sermon outline. It's posted every Saturday night. You're welcome to print that out. You can bring it with you or follow along or look it up on your favorite device. Well, this past week, a few pastor friends and I got into a humorous uh, online debate uh, about some of the hymns in the Trinity hymnal. Uh, I like the newer version of Rock of Ages, and they didn't. I'm not a fan of El Shaddai, but a few of them are. But there was one hymn we all agreed on, and we were unanimous that putting this hymn in the hymnal was a colossal mistake. And you wonder, just what was this gross error of hymnody? Hymn 579 Dare to be a Daniel. Let me regale you with these stirring lyrics. Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them, the faithful few, all hail to Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. Not my favorite. 
And if the hymn wasn't so annoying, I would say, I have now heard enough dare to be a Daniel sermons to last the rest of my life. I've even told my preaching class that if they ever turned in a sermon by that title, it would be an automatic F. See, these types of messages are exhorting us to have more courage, more faith, more prayer, more discipline, more conviction, more this, more that. (coughs) As if it all depends on you. And it all depends on you doing more. Most of those messages are rich in moralism and light on the gospel. Excuse me. I looked at a number of them this week. Saw one on how Daniel is the model to be a better politician. Another, Daniel is the model of faithful worship. Not sure we need a lion's den for faithful worship, but uh, however, you could go to the next one, which was how to silence the lions in your life. My least favorite was the one where the story of Daniel and the lion's den was used to ask the question, have you really given God a chance to prove himself to you? As if creation and the cross weren't enough. Now to be fair, most of the things they want you to do more of are not bad things. You know, prayer, faith, courage, conviction, they are not bad in and of themselves. However, this passage is not how we should emulate Daniel. This passage is about the God who instills courage and grants faith and answers prayer. And ultimately, the question it's forcing us to consider is essentially, when our world is falling apart, is our God still sovereign? When the job is lost, when the relationships fail, when the grades are bad, when the dangers are real, is our God still sovereign? When I was writing this, I came to a new appreciation of Dr. Paul Tripp, um, the famous counselor, and he's written a number of devotionals, and one of them has sort of the tongue-in-cheek title of Dare to be a Darius. He writes... Many things in your life are out of your control. We live in a world filled with injustice, oppression, corruption, disaster, disease, and various other kinds of trouble. Many of us have experienced loss, tragedy, and suffering because of the condition of our fallen world. As I've traveled around the global church, I found that all this trouble has gotten Christians discouraged. Much of our emotional energy is sapped by worry. Many of us are motivated by fear. I understand that life in a fallen world is hard. We experience things every day that were never meant to happen when God designed his perfect created order. But I've come to understand this. When we assess the trouble in our lives, many of us forget to calculate the existence, character, and plan of God. We take into account the size of the difficulty, and we take into account the effect it has on our lives. But we struggle to take into account God. We simply forget that he is present, ruling, and loving. 
And perhaps we simply need to remember more. In Daniel chapter 6, we've now come to the end of what's essentially Act 1 in the book of Daniel. It's split into two sections. And chapters 1 through 6 describe Daniel's life, pretty much from beginning to end. And it's helpful to review the key images or events that play a pivotal role in piecing together the gospel message of Daniel. In chapter 1, Daniel and his friends were kept healthy on a dangerous diet of vegetable soup as God communicated to his people, I remember you. Chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's statue was displaced by a heavenly rock as God ensures his people, I will rescue you. In chapter 3, one like a son of the gods appears with Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace to demonstrate God's principle, I will be with you. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's restoration from his animal-like insanity communicates God's message to his own idolatrous people that I exalt the humble. And in an important but gracious contrast, chapter 5 reveals the writing on the wall that humbles Belshazzar and discloses God's loving warning of judgment to all people at all times that I humble the exalted. And these messages are all wrapped together and they all show up in chapter 6. I remember you, I will rescue you, I am with you, I exalt the humble and humble the exalted. And I love how it all ends, verses 26 and 27, where Darius, not Daniel, delivers one of the great statements about God. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. So how do we get from Daniel as the model to Darius as the model? Well, it wasn't easy. After all, Daniel already knew that God was sovereign, even over the most fearsome dangers that roamed the earth. And as a result, he's able to experience a profound peace in the midst of the trials and tribulations of his life, as if his life was going along rather smoothly. And so if we want to experience profound peace, if we're going to be able to trust that everything actually will uh, work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, in spite of the adversity and disappointment that seem to enter our lives on a regular basis, and I think we need to learn the lessons that this chapter has to offer us. And so with that in mind, let's look first at the pilgrim life of Daniel, verses 1 through 5. The pilgrim life of Daniel. The first thing we see is that Daniel's learned how to live as a pilgrim. From the very beginning, from his arrival in Babylon in chapter 1, when he's a teen, and the book of Daniel covers the exile. So it doesn't take place in Jerusalem or Judah, or Israel, it takes place in Babylon. And from the time he arrives, uh, he has spent his life in this culture, but not of this culture. On the one hand, he never withdrew from the Babylonian culture to avoid getting stained by it, but on the other hand, he's now served the Babylonian Empire faithfully for some 70 years. Even after Babylon was taken over by the Persians, he continued to serve faithfully. Nebuchadnezzar has been replaced by Belshazzar, who's been replaced by Darius. 
but Daniel kept serving. And according to our text, Daniel served the empire so well, he kept getting promoted. And now he's one of the key leaders in the entire empire, starting at verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So even while he serves this foreign empire, he's never shaped by its values. Corruption is a major concern in our world today, but it seems that it was even more common in the ancient Near East. And yet Daniel's life is so free of corruption and negligence that his enemies can't find anything to use against him, even after searching diligently. And we're certainly familiar in our own day with the kind of scrutiny that takes place whenever someone's nominated for office in our country. There's been several people nominated to serve in the current administration, just as in all previous administrations, who've had to withdraw from consideration after some skeleton in their closet comes to life. And I wonder, how many of us have lives that can withstand that kind of scrutiny? Indeed, if we were the ones under the microscope, would the investigators come back with empty hands and say, sorry, you might as well stop digging for dirt on this person. His life is utterly above reproach. Well, that's what Zenemy said about Daniel in verses 4 and 5. They recognize they're not going to find anything wrong with his life unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And Daniel's goodness doesn't win him any friends. Quite the contrary. His faithfulness has earned him some powerful enemies. Some sought to bring him down because they're jealous of his success. Others turned on him because of his incorruptibility, limits their own ability to manipulate the system for personal gain. And truth is, we live in a hostile world. And we not only need to recognize that, we need to be prepared for it. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We should expect opposition as a simple fact of life. Now, believers around the world pretty much know that. We try to highlight that several times a year. In November, in just a couple weeks, we're going to be posting a daily prayer throughout November focused on the persecuted church. And yet, here in our country, in our uh, prosperous and supposedly tolerant West, We've come to expect our lives as Christians to run smoothly and successfully, at least if we're professing to follow Jesus. 
And yet, as I read the Bible, it seems that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. God never promises easy. There's lots of promises in the scripture. Easy isn't one of them. Persecution is. Persecution and hardship come to us in a variety of forms and from all directions, yet we're told these things are the things that are supposed to mark our lives as Christians in a fallen world. It may be mockery and isolation at school. It may be conflict and trouble at work. It may simply be being, uh, being regarded uh, by others as peculiar and strange. But one way or another, we should expect to suffer for the sake of Christ. Pilgrims remember that. Pilgrims understand the world is not our home, and therefore, we shouldn't be surprised if things don't go our way. The Apostle Paul once wrote, in a quote I have on my office wall, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Daniel's life confirms those words. He's faithfully following God in a foreign land, and people are out to get him. And that sets up the trial that's at the heart of this passage, which is seen in the persecuted life of Daniel. The persecuted life of Daniel, starting at verse 6. I'm going to skip a few verses, but we'll end at verse 16. Verse 6. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Then, jumping down to verse 12, Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction? that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Now, Daniel's enemies know that in order to bring a charge against him, that they'd have to engineer a clash between the law of his God 
and the law of the state. They knew if they could put Daniel in a situation where he was forced to choose between the two, he would choose obedience to God first. And once again, this observation should be somewhat convicting uh, for us. Daniel's enemies are confident that he would rather die than disobey God. They knew he would go to the lions before giving up prayer. Is there anyone in our lives that would say that about us? Probably not. And so Daniel's enemies convinced the king to issue this decree that for 30 days no one can petition any god or man except for the king himself on pain of being thrown into the lion's den. And most likely, and the text doesn't tell us this, but I'm, I, I think this is what's happening, as I think Darius views this as a political move more than a religious move. It's a means of uniting the kingdom by identifying himself as the sole mediator between the people and the gods. And it somewhat functions in the same way as Nebuchadnezzar's statue did back in Daniel 3. Now, the rejection of Christians by the world is to a great degree unavoidable. Take a look at what happens here with Daniel. He's a perfect example of what we all know. That is, for centuries, there's always been great tension between people inside the church and people outside the church. And yet the explanations of both those inside and outside tend to be simplistic and self-serving. Very often Christians will say, well, the reason why there's this tension is simply that we're being persecuted. We're like Daniel. We're good, and the world doesn't like the fact that we're good. <laughs> Truth be told, we're not nearly as good as we think we are. Most Christians aren't quite like Daniel. Most Christians aren't anywhere near that consistent, hence all the do-more sermons. At the same time, people outside the church have their own explanation, and it often goes like this. Christians tend to be hypocrites. They're narrow-minded. They put people down. They oppress people. That's why there's so much tension between those inside and those outside the church. And while the vast majority of Christians aren't Daniels, they aren't charlatans either. Both explanations are way too simplistic and self-serving. And I think, particularly in today's culture, we need to be very careful. You know, in today's culture, there's a myth that when you think of Christianity, you're thinking of old white men with a lot of power who are putting everybody else down. In reality, the majority of Christians today are in Africa and Latin America, in Asia, and in emerging economies. The fact is, the vast majority of Christians have never been the people in power, have never been the people at the top. So in our text, this is actually a very unusual situation. Daniel does have the power. He is at the top. He's right below the king himself. Now, I don't think the others are going after him because he's such a high-character guy. I think they're jealous that he has the power and they don't. And if they can get rid of him, then they can get the power. It's the same power politics of every other capital on the planet. The only difference is when they go to dig up dirt on Daniel, they can't find any. 
So they attack his faith because they can't find anything else to attack. So they pass a law that you can only pray to the king. And the motive is pretty obvious because it's only a 30-day law. It's not a permanent law. And so they figure, you know, 30 days, once Daniel's out of the way, we don't really need that law anymore. Now, it seems clear from the text that the king eventually figures out what's going on. His advisors have manipulated him to act against Daniel. And he's sorry about putting his faithful and honest servant in this position. And he seeks a way to rescue Daniel from this fate. But he can't see a way out of it without losing face and sacrificing his own credibility among the leaders in the empire. And so Darius abandons Daniel to his fate in the lion's den. And yet, Darius's last words to Daniel point to another source for help. Verse 16. May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Which brings us to the two verses that we skipped over, verses 10 and 11, which are about the prayer life of Daniel. The prayer life of Daniel. Those verses say, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Now there's a number of different ways Daniel could have responded. You or I might have rushed before the king to protest the unfairness of this new law. Or we might uh, go home in tears to complain about it. When Daniel hears about the new law, way you have to realize they lied to the king about making the law. They said, all the presidents are in agreement. Well, obviously Daniel wasn't. But Daniel goes home, and he does what he's always done. Three times a day, it's his habit to go to his room to pray, kneeling down and giving thanks. Notice this end of verse 10. As he had done previously. Now, if he didn't, start praying three times a day until he was, say, 10. That's just a guess. And he's now about 85. Again, that's sort of a guess. That means Daniel prayed three times a day for 75 years. And how many times would Daniel have prayed if he prayed three times a day for 75 years? So I did the math. Math doesn't come easy to me. And the answer comes out to over 82,000 prayers. That's a lot of prayers. But no wonder he went back to his room and started praying. A 75-year-old habit is hard to break. He's not about to stop praying um, just because these plotting princes threatened his life. And after all, he's now uh, around 85. He's not going to live forever anyways. And he wasn't afraid to die. So they tricked Darius into signing this 30-day law. Daniel just goes ahead with his daily routine. No big deal. He goes home, kneels down, faces towards Jerusalem, and offers his prayer to God. And he does it before the open window. And he could have moved wherever he prayed to a corner of the room where they couldn't see him. Just does what he always does. Knowing 
his adversaries are probably going to catch him. And what I find most remarkable about this story is not that this crisis drove him to his knees. It didn't disrupt his regular habit of prayer. He didn't hide to pray. And the text doesn't tell us that he cried out to God about injustice. It says he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He knows he's facing imminent death knowing that his enemies will see him and they're going to use his prayers against him. And yet Daniel's on his knees giving thanks. And sure enough, the plotters come, they find him praying, as he had done previously. And since Daniel has prayed this way somewhat uh, openly three times a day, it doesn't take a great deal of skill to catch him in the act. Now, Surely God could have closed their eyes as easily as he closed the mouths of the lions so that Daniel could pray without hindrance. But his purpose is not to save Daniel from trials, but rather to save Daniel through trials. And there are lessons here that Daniel and all those around him needed to learn, lessons that can only be learned by going into the lion's den. That's an important lesson for us as well. God's not committed to our comfort. He's not committed to making our path smooth. He's committed to sanctifying us and demonstrating his own glory in and through us. And oftentimes that commitment means subjecting these earthen vessels to pressures that would surely shatter us were not his grace sufficient. The Lord will take you into the eye of the storm if for no other reason to show you that he's the master of the storm and that he can make sure your fragile vessel makes it safely to the other side. His wonderful plan for your life is to sanctify you, often through trials and tribulations. Again, listen to the Apostle Peter as he confirms this. 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's step back here for a moment and look at these two main characters, Daniel and Darius. Here's Daniel, calm, continuing in his pattern of prayer. And here's the king of the greatest empire on earth, agonizing over what he can do. It's a picture of a, the power of a man who is weak, but strong in Christ has, versus the weakness of a man who's strong in the world, but weak in the things of God. And it's a total contrast. The mighty monarch is, verse 14, distressed. But Daniel, knowing that he's facing death, remains calm, composed, faithful to the Lord. It's the difference between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our Lord. However, ironically, the agonizing helplessness that he felt results in a changed life for Darius. A changed life for Darius, verses 17 to verse 28 at the end. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. 
Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? There's a long pause. And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So here we have this irony in contrasting the experiences of Daniel and Darius. Darius returns to his palace. He spends a sleepless, anxious night, unable to enjoy any of the usual comforts of a king. And at dawn, he gets up and hurries to the lion's den, crying out to Daniel as he arrives. Meanwhile, Daniel responds to the king's troubled cry as calm and peaceful as if he had spent the night in his own bed rather than with the lions. Verses 21, 22. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before you, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So contrary to all expectations, Daniel has spent a far more comfortable night in the lion's den than the king did, even though King Darius was surrounded by luxury. He has every pleasure the ancient world had to offer, yet he couldn't enjoy any of them. And Daniel has nothing but the presence of God and enjoys a good night's rest. It's a vivid picture that our peace doesn't come from possessions, but from the presence of God. Now, it's not as if the lions aren't capable of eating anybody because those who falsely accuse Daniel get tossed in, and the text says, end of verse 24, before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. It's a terrible end. Their gods are unable to deliver them from the lions where Daniel's God had delivered them. It's not just a good person and a bad person. It's one God is able and the other gods are unable. And in the end, what we see is the heavenly court is the only one whose decision really matters. 
The most high God holds the ultimate power of life and death, not some earthly king. And in telling the king of his innocence, Daniel's living up to his name, which means my God is the judge. God did, in fact, answer his prayers and show him mercy while the conspirators' fate demonstrates that they have been judged and found guilty by God, not just the earthly king, confirming the justice of their death sentence. But the story doesn't end there. And there's another lesson out there, and we learn this from the lips of Darius himself, who understands what has happened. And it results in the king giving what amounts to a profession of faith. Darius is one of the great kings of the ancient world. And he's forced to confess that the king who truly lives forever is the God of heaven, not the rulers of earth. In response to Daniel's deliverance, Darius issues a counter-decree, not only nullifies his original edict, but in this new decree, commands the people to fear and reverence the God of Daniel, the living God who is able to deliver and rescue and save. And as he did with Nebuchadnezzar in chapters 3 and 4, and as he did with Belshazzar in chapter 5, God now does with Darius. The Lord has brought the rulers of the mightiest of empires to acknowledge his greatness and his power, as well as the fact that his is the only kingdom that will last forever. And this rounds off the story of Daniel's life and puts his experience in the lion's den into a broader context. It also reminds us that most of Daniel's life was spent in exile. And as far as we know, Daniel never returned home to his beloved Judah. His reward would have to wait until the heavenly Jerusalem. And yet, in the experiences of Daniel, God demonstrated that he could keep his people safe in the midst of their enemies. Life in exile would never be easy nor would it ever be home. However, through the faithfulness of God, it's possible for his people to survive as strangers in a strange land and as aliens in exile, serving the empire, yet looking forward to the city yet to come. This is how Daniel teaches us. Because we too are strangers in a strange land, living as aliens in this world. And we should learn from Daniel's experience that the world in which we live is a dangerous place. This world is not our home and never will be. Therefore, in the midst of our greatest suffering, even in persecution, we can have a peace that astounds the world, for the Lord holds both us and our oppressors in his hand. However, does Daniel 6 really give us a true picture of persecution and suffering? Isn't it true that for every Daniel whom God delivers from the lion's den, there's been hundreds and thousands of nameless martyrs whom God didn't deliver? Haven't faithful Christians suffered tremendously over the years and are still suffering today? Where is God in those situations? Are those believers less faithful to God or any less important to God than Daniel was? In order to answer those questions, we need to see that Daniel gives us more than a model on how to deal with suffering and more than an example to stand firm when faith is tested. I really think to answer the hard questions, 
First, we have to understand that Daniel is a foreshadowing of the verdict that will be delivered on all believers on that great and final judgment day of the Lord. And that's because it's a foreshadowing of a finished work. It's a foreshadowing of a finished work. See, Daniel endured the test of the lion's den, emerging safely on the other side, because God judged him and found him not guilty. However, the unbelievers who plotted against Daniel were found guilty and crushed by the judgment of God. And on the last day, all those that are in Adam will be found guilty and will share their fate, while all those who are in Christ will be found not guilty and will share his fate. And this shows us how Jesus fulfills Daniel 6. Now, there's a very interesting statement if you go back and look at verse 17. It says, And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So here the king's signet ring and the signet ring of his lords are used to seal the stone that's placed over the lion's den. This passage bears an uncanny resemblance to Matthew 27, verses 65 and 66, where we read, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Like Daniel was sealed in the lion's den, so Christ was sealed in the tomb. And it's the ruler's way to seal the fate of these servants of God. And in both cases, the sealing led to greater glory for God when he brought Daniel up out of the den and Christ up out of the tomb. And like Daniel, Jesus was falsely accused by his enemies. Mark 14, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. And like Daniel, Jesus was brought before a ruler, Pontius Pilate, who unsuccessfully sought to deliver him before then handing him over to a violent death. And like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to die and his body was placed in a sealed pit so his situation couldn't be changed by human intervention. Daniel clearly foreshadows Christ. But Jesus is so much greater than Daniel. God saved Daniel from certain death, but God raised Jesus after he actually died. You see, Jesus went even deeper than Daniel. He didn't merely face the threat of death. He faced death itself. And though Jesus was innocent, he suffered the fate of the guilty. There's no angel to comfort him with the presence of God. On the contrary, he was alone and abandoned, suffering the fate we deserve. And yet Jesus' experience is itself a foreshadowing of the final judgment, a declaration ahead of time of the verdict of the heavenly court. Jesus died for our sins, not his own, and ultimately death had no power over him. Jesus didn't remain in the grip of the tomb, uh, but God raised him from the dead precisely because the heavenly court found him not guilty. Psalm 22 which Jesus quoted from on the cross, which begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Near the end says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Save me from the mouth of the lion. 
It's not surprising that the early church saw in the story of Daniel and the lion's den a foreshadowing of the resurrection of the Lord. For as Daniel was brought out of a den that had been sealed by those in power, so the Lord Jesus was raised from a tomb which had been sealed by those in power. And what's more, when Jesus emerges from the tomb on that first Easter morning, he brought with him God's stamp of acquittal. Not only for himself, but for all those who, by faith, are in union in Christ, are in union with Christ. When Daniel came forth from the lion's den, he came out alone. But when Jesus comes forth from the tomb, he comes out as the head of a mighty company of people who've been redeemed from the pit through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And whoever believes in Jesus will receive the same verdict from the heavenly court that he did, for his righteousness will be counted as theirs. The people that Jesus redeemed through his death and resurrection aren't some sort of super believers like we make Daniel out to be. Most of them are ordinary sinners, people who constantly cave to the unrighteous demands of the empire. And it doesn't look like this motley crew has that much more to commend it. Yet even someone as deeply sinful as you and me can be found beautiful before a holy and perfect God because he sees the end of the process. He sees the glorious church that he promises to present to himself without flaw or blemish. My salvation, your salvation, rests not on our ability to dare to be a Daniel, but solely on the perfect obedience of Christ in my place. And in the midst of trials and temptations, that is where our comfort is to be found, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the true and better Daniel. And for that, his grateful people said, Amen. Think about what Christ has done for you and then thank him in prayer. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're amazed at the grace you showed to Daniel and to Darius. One was yours and one wasn't. Yet you called them both to the truth. We're not nearly so amazed at the grace you've shown to us. It's because we know we're not better than Daniel, but we think we're better than Darius. And yet we come before you as people of little faith and less prayer. But here you are showing grace to the undeserving. Lord, thank you that no one is beyond your grace, not even Darius, not even us. Thank you on that first Easter morning, the seal was broken, the tomb was empty, Christ was raised, and he comes forth as the head of a mighty company of redeemed people. Build us up in such a way that we live according to that faith we profess as part of that redeemed people. Enable us to recognize the evil around us and remind us that one day, Jesus is coming back to make all things right. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. In the name of him who claims us as his own and clothes us in his own righteousness, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns and is coming again. Amen.
Amen. Let's stand and respond to God's word in song. prayer this Wednesday afternoon as I officiate the burial service for Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Dent Goodson, father of D.B. Goodson at Arlington National Cemetery. Dan Goodson, or Pop as he was known, died last May due to complications arising from 84 years of good living. I appreciate that. Hear God's blessings. 
Daniel's God is the living God, world without end. His kingdom never falls. His rule continues eternally. He is a savior and rescuer. He performs astonishing miracles in heaven and on earth. He saved Daniel from the power of the lions. This is your God. God bless you. We'll see you next week. All right, everybody have a seat, and we'll dismiss you by sections, part of our COVID protocols. All right, we're going to dismiss the two corners in the back. So that side, go out the back door. This side, go out this side door. And there is an offering box by each exit. Please hang out outside. Let us meet you, greet you, all of that good stuff. Center sections in the back. You are dismissed. sections uh, you're dismissed okay you guys are left you get to go now